Hello and welcome to this episode of the Future Perfect Talks. Uh, this is the second in a two-part mini-series on modularity and verticalization in housing. We have two of the um, absolute pioneers in, in uh, housing verticalization, um, Oliver Lang from Intelligent City and Fed Novikov from Apt Buildings. Uh, I'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves uh, your background just in one second and then we can kind of you know kind of jump jump into the into the conversation but just for anyone that doesn't have a sense of what verticalization means in architecture engineering and construction or in any sector just to frame it slightly verticalization basically means a sector business in a specific sector taking on more of its own supply chain roughly speaking in the u.s market a sector is called a vertical and every vertical or every sector has a supply chain of you know bits and pieces and verticalization means pulling into your business operation more of the upstream or the downstream of the of the business supply chain of business operations so that's roughly what it means in case anyone is not familiar with it um oliver why don't you kick off and, and share you know what you're doing your background briefly and then and then you fed and then we can kind of you know see what's going on sure so thanks john for her, for having me it's a great pleasure to be here and um hi fed uh, it's very nice to meet you too so yeah, I'm I'm Oliver Lang. I'm the CEO and uh, co-founder of Intelligent City. Um, we're based in Vancouver, and we're a housing technology company. Um, we're founded about a decade ago with the general mission to build smarter and to essentially empower people to live better. Um, we're really focusing on the seamless sort of end-to-end -end integration. Um, from design through uh, off-site manufacturing um, to deliver, you know, a, a much better value, a much better quality product um, to allow a much broader range of people access to, you know, high quality housing with, you know, a key, a few sort of industry firsts that I should mention um, one of which is, you know, all, all our buildings can be net zero or carbon neutral today and meet the higher standards for like elite platinum and passive house certification. So that's been always in our DNA to make our buildings future proof from an environmental perspective. Um, and then, you know, focusing on a few things that are sort of industry first, um, use a renewable resource as a material for our building system. So we decided over a decade ago to adopt mass timber um, as something because it has many uh, advantages in an offsite prefabrication environment that we can talk to about in detail later. But really, our focus was to deliver a building system for buildings up to 18 stories in height, which has something to do with the regulatory framework that's just emerged in North America. Um, and, uh, and then use that as another sort of industry first um, in a fully automated manufacturing assembly uh, environment that we're, that we're pioneering um, and we're, we're really excited to share that we're going to launch our plant. We've been working on it for years in about 60 days. Um, and yeah, it's going to be the first sort of plant of its kind where we use large scale mass timber components that are be assembled by advanced, uh, by advanced robotics. So, you know, essentially, um, we're a company that, uh, has an integrated technology ecosystem, something that we call platforms for life. Um, that has our own in-house parametric um, design software 
patent pending mass, mass timber building systems, our own design engineering uh, solutions with a specific focus on urban mid-rise densification, and then this automated manufacturing component. All of that is seamlessly integrated, um, and that's what we've worked on for the last uh, uh, last decade. Okay, excellent, uh, Fed. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, John, for inviting, and a really a pleasure to have this conversation with you and Oliver. Uh, so I'm a co-founder and CEO of Apt Buildings. We're a Los Angeles-based uh, developer and operator uh, of uh, low-rise, standardized uh, multifamily buildings. And uh, we uh, we are looking at vertical verticalization in a uh, slightly different way, where we actually try to start at the top of the value chain with development, land pipeline, and defining the product, uh, and working directly with investors. But compared to traditional developers that are very uh, lean, uh, we actually are very much involved in design, engineering, and the supply chain as well. But uh, we are not uh, um, uh, planning to be in the near term involved in manufacturing ourselves. So we are interested in the vertic verticalization of uh, the housing production, but it's a slightly different part of the value chain compared to what Oliver just uh, des uh, described. Um, and we are also um, a much younger company. We, we were uh, founded last year uh, and currently ramping up to uh, develop our first project. Okay, brilliant. So, so we're going to get through all the details of, of what you're doing and why and what else is out there. But let's, let's zoom out for a second. Um, maybe it's difficult to generalize, but let's try anyway. What is up with the housing market? Who needs what? I mean, is because if you look at the, I mean, the statistics that came out just yesterday in terms of how, you know, um, uh, housing prices in, across different US cities, it's effectively chaotic. It's very, very hard to understand what's going on. So is there any generic that you can respond to as housing, um, I mean, developers in the broader sense, what's going on in the market? Um, well, uh, I'll try to, uh, to answer about uh, what uh, we see in the United, in the United States. Um, and basically after the last housing crisis, the, the country has been underproducing over, over 200,000 units, uh, housing units a year. Um, so that uh, really means we have a huge accumulated shortage of housing. Now, uh, that is something that uh, attracted our attention uh, to, uh, to our model because we were pretty, pretty much looking for a way to uh, standardize uh, housing products to make them more cost effective and therefore uh, build more where, 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 where they're needed. Now, if you're asking about what's happening today in a post-COVID world, um, really, um, it's a pretty, pretty crazy environment with an incredibly short supply um, and increased housing, um, sorry, material costs. Um, and we will see where it lands, but it's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, if we step back for a, a moment to mm -hmm. a sort of a, a bigger picture right now, if you take the, the United Nations numbers, um, <clears throat> and some of the listeners may be well, well familiar with them, but as, I think it's worth repeating. Um, we essentially need to create and build over a trillion square feet of housing 
in the world uh, over the next 30 years. Um, so that's, you know, if you translate that, that's basically the entire metro Vancouver, uh, the entire metro um, New York City area once a month for the next 30 years. So it's a, it's a, it's a massive uh, uh, thing we need to accomplish collectively as an industry. And we don't have the right wait, tools. Wait, 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 sorry, sorry. So, specifically, I mean, that's for the currently unhoused, that's to replace current building stock. I mean, just in terms of the global picture, what what, what is that aimed at? Yeah, that's to uh, accommodate basically the projected population growth that we have on the planet. Um, right, and that, increasing that urbanized, that urbanized, because this is maybe this urbanization. Is urban housing, right? Yeah. Correct, increased urbanization and also you know, to accommodate those who are currently in unacceptable housing stock, right? So if you add that all okay. together, yeah. you get you get to that number. Um, yeah, and so that's that's this is a, a very, very significant challenge. And yet we still operate in an industry that is incredibly fragmented, um, where buildings are built almost always as bespoke one of solutions site by site, building by building. Um, and in an industry that has, you know, been broadly confirmed by the World, uh, the, the World Economic Forum and the um, McKenzie Global Institute and reports are already published years ago, you know, an industry that really hasn't been able to, to implement innovation in any meaningful way um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, change its productivity. Um, we're still lacking behind almost every single other industry in the world. So it's, an, it's a huge opportunity to introduce technologies and leapfrog in a way um, what's currently being done and to provide meaningful uh, solutions at scale. And I think that's the, the, the really important thing that we, we need to change our perspective. We need to think about scale, we need to think big, and we need to come up with technologies that really can be applied uh, in, uh, in, in, in many of the markets. And you know, if we focus in a bit on North America, um, we have urban urban population uh, centers that are hugely attractive or have been for for some time now in the Pacific Northwest and California in Texas in uh, Ontario uh, on the East Coast and so forth um, and and you know they're they're just the demand far outpaces what this the sector is able to produce if, if anything we have consistent labor shortages and run into cost escalation every year after year five percent seven percent uh seems to be an unstoppable spiral mm. so um so there's a cautionary tale that kind of rings in the ears of everyone uh that's working in this space, and it will do for a few years to come, which is Flux, right? Flux raised $45 million um, from a number of investors, including uh, Google. It was originally a project inside Google X. And their initial pitch was very similar to what you're describing, Oliver, which is we need a lot of housing, sustainable housing um, for the world right now, all right, from back in, from back in 2012, which is when it roughly started. And... What ends up happening, and I mean, obviously you know this, but I'm kind of sharing it for anyone who, who doesn't know, um, they didn't end up selling a product, they didn't build any housing, and you know, but they burnt all the money and it sort of vaporized. And 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 so I kind of going to kind of you know frame a you know a provocative um, a version of the same question really in this way. Do you feel right? So I'll put one question, one version of the question to you, Fed, and one to you, um, Oliver. Do you feel, Fed, that you were involved in the same broad challenge as what Oliver just described, which is providing a more efficient product 
to a massive housing opportunity or are you involved in something else that may have some overlaps that's the question for you but and then the question for you oliver is um is it realistic to create a housing solution that is essentially as as modular as it may be standardized given the fragmentation and political complexity and and kind of just legal and ownership and financial complexity of actual real estate development okay we'll take them step by step so fed firstly are you involved in the same project broadly speaking as what oliver is describing or are you actually doing something else um i would say absolutely uh when we were even thinking about starting this company with uh, michael founder peter um it's we we pretty much looked at um the numbers and the question of you know is there is there enough housing and again it might sound like obvious today to say no there there isn't enough but we wanted to make sure that even with the existing building stock with the potential to retrofit there is still a drastic need for us to uh, build more supply and the numbers absolutely supported as oliver said we 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 dramatically need to build more housing supply in a cost-efficient way, but hopefully also sustainable um, um, and quality housing. Um, um, so we are definitely uh, are interested in addressing uh, the same, uh, this, the same uh, challenge and problem. Speaking to, about something that you've just mentioned, like uh, Flux, um, um, I, I don't know all the intricacies of what happened with the company, but they... Uh, they started with a very ambitious plan to create, create as far as I remember, the system that you know you find any spot uh, and they show you what you can build. They automatically generate your building. Now, it's a very interesting illustration to the challenge that we are seeing in the industry is that um, the number of variables uh, are it, it, it is so high that um, if you're trying to create a universal solution, you end up pretty much with just CAD, uh, right? Um, it's, it's just too complex. So you need to lock certain degrees of freedom. Um, and uh, I, that's also where I see a lot of you know, conceptual similarities between um, what uh, Oliver's team is doing and in some ways what we are trying to do, maybe we're locking different uh, degrees of freedom, but that's what we're trying to do. In our case, we're saying, Let's uh, look at buildings that are pretty much identical and, and try to find uh, within the complexity of legal constraints, uh, policy constraints, and then uh, available land products that could be repeatable now multiple times. And that's just kind of one way to simplify the problem and therefore hopefully uh, scale it. Okay, Oliver, so, so the question I kind of provocatively put back to you is, um, does the big vision translate to kind of realistic practice? Because in any one city in the U.S., right, you have a thicket of you know uh, of of planning code, building code, ownership, political incentives, political framing. Um, just how do you break through with that with something as simple and compelling as buy this cheaper, this housing that's cheaper to produce? I mean, I can imagine that that works in a global environment, a global scenario where a city authority says, I need 20,000 units now, go, here's the land, here's the money, you're off to the races. But what about the real world situation in, in the US? Is, is the model viable? Well, we believe obviously that, that, it, that it is, um, but you do have to think change as a point of departure 
Um, right. And when I say that, um, you really have to look at what we're what we're producing, what we're offering. We need our first, uh, you know, focus needs to be that we're actually creating a viable product, a product that's yeah. broadly applicable and give people what they really want and give our customers, because we're a B2B company, right? Our customers yeah. are developers yeah. and housing operators, give them what they really want. We need to yeah. solve the problems that are there and the problems that um, our customers are facing are, you know, uh, cost overruns and delays um, and, and all those issues on, on the one end, but also increasingly demanding regulations. Like we will, we have no choice but to, um, in the market, address climate change issues. And, um, and that means buildings need to be high performance. And yet at the same time, we're facing cost escalation issues. So how do we create a product that's simultaneously more affordable and can be delivered more consistently while meeting the increasing demands. And that is really just by focusing on what's essentially needed in a good quality product. And that's what we've really just sort of done over the last decade and, and really mm. think about that. That's something that people would generally would want um, and find desirable as a home. And that has everything to do with efficiencies and developability mm. and so forth. And we get to these productivity gains where we can get to the, the cost of a home and lower that mm. cost by 33% and the cost of a home over its life cycle and lower that cost by 50% while making them you know, net zero at the same time. And so, how do we how do we do that? Um, there's there there are a, a couple of things. One in terms of what what a, um, an approach like this has to do is it needs to be really consistent on one side to meet regulatory issues um, and you know client expectations and so forth, but it also needs to be literally infinitely configurable and adaptable so that we can meet the different needs of our owners because they have different brands or they serve different kind of communities, right? We work in different cities. Um, so there's a lot of complexity being put at that. Um, and so there's two things what we've done to, to tackle that. Number one is we've developed a platform and in that platform integrated everything that we've identified over a long period of research that essentially is true about housing just about anywhere you would go. And that holds true for probably about 80% of the components that you have in the building. Doesn't matter if you built them in Vancouver, in San Francisco, in New York, or in Berlin. Um, so the platform needs to be there and the platform needs to be designed in such a way that others can participate in it in the supply chain that, you know, a, a local contractor, an on-site builder that assembles, helps us assemble our components mm -hmm. can be integrated as much as the, 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 the regulation. So we've done that now by essentially coming up with the technology ecosystem where we use advanced parametric software that we've built in-house that really does this one thing. It does urban housing really well from the front end where we verify all the data about you know, design, engineering, um, and uh, a verification of cost and you know, climate data and anything you need to know to make good decisions and move that decision-making to the front end um, and then create sort of a virtual twin model that gives you verification of everything you need to know and then we manage control the manufacturing, but then have also a supply chain that helps us to, um, to, to integrate that. And by using that software together with automated manufacturing, the advantage is that, that the buildings can be of the same platform, but they don't have to be the same. Meaning, okay. right, we can respond differently in different markets to different needs okay, so, and so, still be so, consistent. So, 
okay, so I hear you. Okay, so there's so there's two tensions that I I you know I'm, I need you to to kind of respond to, and 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 in a way you know what what Fed set up you know in what he was describing of his model is the need to implement constraints. All right, and what you're basically saying is something that appears to be having its cake and eat it, which is says yes, yes, we have a platform, we do operate within constraints, which is why we can optimize design and manufacture and build, but we also enable infinite variety so convince me that's real right because it sounds like you're having your cake and eat it is it is there are there no constraints or are there constraints because there was a second question that hangs on your answer to that <laughs> yeah. i'll ask you the no, same there, question there, fed yeah so there there are, there are many if i if i may respond there there are many constraints yeah. of course that we built into it there are constraints as we want to make sure that our building system for example meets the requirement for new high-rise timber construction Right. So right. we'll build that all in and make sure that no matter where we go in North America, we have this new um, building code in Canada where we can build up to 12 story in the US, even up to 18 stories, depending on state. And so that's a constraint that's built in. There is about logistics and shipping, right? We've started out with modular and realized that that's not great, that we wanted to go panelized, but integrated panels that that gives us better um, logistics management on, on everything. There are constraints about manufacturing. There are constraints about the size of homes and the optimization of homes and, and what people would really want. There are constraints in there about what constitutes easy maintenance and operations of buildings. All of that is baked into the platform. Mm -hmm. And then you look at, okay, so how can I now within that create the variation that allows me to respond to the local requirements, the particular sites, the particular sense of owners, the communities right. that they want to build. Right. So, so Fed. So on on in, on that basis, right? Because Oliver's describing the constraints that he has included in in his platform. Speak from your perspective, and maybe generally as as much as you can. To what extent do the constraints that you're describing in the design or the build or the uh, design or, or fabrication or the build? To what extent do those constraints? limit what developers can get to what extent is the market not ready the, the market of real estate developers to what extent are they not ready for it to what extent are users not ready for it and to what extent do designers resist it there's three kinds of resistance the developers the users and the designers how much do the are those constraints in practice blocking your progress Fed? Mm -hmm. well First, I want to say that I think that uh, the approach that Oliver is describing is absolutely um, the future for, for the industry. So finding the right balance for the platform, for the right amount of flexibility in the system is, is, is the future of the industry. Um, it's uh, really just important, I think, uh, you know, for the developers to be the right partners for the, uh, the, the type of uh, innovative companies like uh, intelligence uh, cities uh, are to fully take advantage of that. So in our case, um, you know, we are uh, looking at constraints uh, starting with land uh, because we, we're, um, for example, intelligence city from what Oliver is describing is working with on larger projects, right? So, mm, High rises that in every case would be unique. Um, our company is focusing on low rise and standardized low rise development. So we're really looking mm -hmm. uh, at a pipeline of land that shares the same characteristics in terms of physical characteristics, like similar 
dimensions for the sites, uh, similar uh, reg regulatory context, so um, similar zoning, so that the product would be um, pretty, uh, pretty repeatable. Now, this is the reason why we're doing this is because traditionally, at least in, in that industry um, in the United States, developers would work backwards from the site, right? They would uh, come across a good site, run uh, a financial model for it, say, okay, that makes sense. And then they would try to maximize what they can do with it. Uh, but because these properties are pretty small, you know, the difference is not as huge between different sites. So what we are trying to do is saying, okay, let's line up many sites that share these characteristics so that with our manufacturing partners, uh, we would be able to commit to a consistent, um, uh, consistent pipeline of projects that they would uh, know they would be manufacturing for and therefore hopefully uh, achieve a um, lower price. Now, we started this because in our experience, when we spoke to manufacturers, um, different manufacturers of prefab and prefab companies in the United States, they said that, you know, we have standard products, um, but nobody wants them. Uh, and mm. so, you know, we, we would be happy to do that, but just, you know, developers that come to us always want uh, unique projects. So our approach was let's rethink the, the a developer business model around standardization and therefore help our manufacturing partners. So in so in both cases, um, what you're what you're saying is that the developer market just has to wake up and grow up and evolve, right? That it's constrained to the extent that you have a format, you have a build model, um, but you believe that the developer community, the your developer market, can evolve and expand around that model. That, that is that is that the essence of the of the issue with constraint with developers? They just have to get on board with the with the, with the future. Um, I, I, I think we need to, you know, be clear that developers are making their best effort to build good communities, to build affordable housing. You know, they want to make right. a profit. I think that's perfectly understandable. Um, there are many of them take great pride in, in the brands that they develop and the product that they create or the communities yeah. that they're developing, like from the yeah. nonprofit sector, for example, that we're also working with, right? Um, yeah. We just need to we just need to really address the, the 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 key problems that they are facing, and we need to do it in such a way that what we contribute makes a really meaningful change. If we just do like you know improve their business model by three percent, they're not going to make a change in what they adopt. They're going to keep mm -hmm. going with what they've essentially been doing for the last seventy five years. Um, mm -hmm. That's the model, and it's painful. They even say it's painful, right? They've got a lot of issues with with buildings after completion, customer relationships and quality control and troubles and that, that are there all the time. But they rather have that than, than sort of jump into something new. So we need to prove to them that the that overall the 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 delivery, the consistency and the economics are just really substantially different. Right. And I think that's that's the mission that we're on is to show them, look, we're we're totally with you, but we can help you to, you know, further your brand, deliver a better product and meet the sort of um, requirements that are there around, you know, as I mentioned, climate change or as well as, mm -hmm. you know, we're offering a different value paradigm that allows developers to get incentives 
right, um, for building higher density, to be able to build higher, to lower the land cost proportionally. I think we need yeah. to be in a really direct dialogue with the needs of the of, of, of the industry, and, and that's what we're trying to do. So if we take just a couple of examples, so we take, I mean, just a random example, so we take Greystar in the US, which is a big multifamily residential builder. If we take Barrett Homes in the UK, they make residential homes at large scale. Are they likely to just buy into your model at scale or they're likely to do their own version of this? Because if the logic is correct, right, that doing things this way has these various benefits for developers, do you think that they're going to be so convinced of it they'll just work it all out for themselves or will they just buy what you're doing in volume? Both you, Fed and Oliver, I'm curious to see how you think the market's going to evolve in that direction. I think I think there will be a little bit of both. I mean, some some developers already run their own construction teams, for example, and they just they will just try to see what they can do in terms of adopting, you know, better software solutions that are out there in the market. Buy into softwares, buy you know the the, the typical tools that are there in BIM and so forth, and improve their operations. Maybe they start a little prefabbing. And then there will be others, and those ones that we're working with, that actually can understand that to get to that kind of new quality and cost paradigm that we're offering, you need deep integration, right? Which is where we started this conversation with. You need literally the decade off of technology readiness right. and market readiness right. development, where software, hardware, manufacturing, logistics, product design, and engineering are all calibrated to work with each other. You sure. can't just go in there and saying, oh, I'm going to come up with a big piece of software. Well, who's going to have a system that to build what that software may generate, right? Or you have a building system, but you don't know how to integrate and design because you have to educate designers and then and, and builders and so forth. And that's because of that fragmentation is, is the reason why we haven't seen innovation. And that's why we decided. Uh, you know, a long time ago that we need to work on that integration as the driver of what, what we do. Do you have the same sense, Fed, that, of, of how the market's going to absorb what you're doing at large scale? I mean. oh. mm -hmm. um, so I think in our case, um, the we are operating right in what's called missing middle uh, housing. Uh, so uh, we're only targeting low rise multifamily of, you know, between uh, five to 30 units um and so a typical criteria for us is a building that would fit on a typical lot right so uh and that is a scale that large institutional players that you've um described in your question don't typically go to because for mm -hmm. a lot of institutional players they look at buildings you know maybe at least 100 units uh, per per project so we fall in a category where mostly local mom and pop developers uh, operate. And so with them, um, and, you know, I, I want to second what Oliver said, they're doing their best efforts, right? They're building mm -hmm. um, uh, housing. They're normally like maybe sometimes family businesses. So they're, they're doing the best, uh, but they have limits to how much capital they have uh, compared to large institu institutional players. So they can normally develop only a handful of projects uh, per year in a particular market. And so in their case, um, their volume of projects just does not justify um, getting into prefabrication or investing into you know, software development platform like data science in, in, in the market. So 
so so there at the smaller scale the biggest challenge is how do you create a pipeline that from the economic perspective it makes sense for any manufacturing partner because they would not do a project for just you know five units here and five units there which would be unique so that's 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 how we're thinking is you know whether we create tools to eventually um, uh, uh, increase the capacity and help some of the local developers maybe tap into into that supply chain that we create or it ultimately uh, makes sense for institutional players uh, to take a look at this on the portfolio level uh, we don't know yet uh, but mm. but that's what make it interesting because it's kind of this a gray area or or you know there is a good reason why it's called missing middle today mm. okay so let, let's look for a second at, at at kind of housing typology which is kind of pretentious architectural language for what tech people or product people call form factor um who who are we really building for i mean one thing that occurs to me uh, and it's it's hard to know how to interpret this is that a lot of sustainability money has gone into prefabrication of s small single family homes right that you could build in the wilderness or you can build in the garden or you can build in some sort of peripheral location but it seems that that's a very um inherently unsustainable format that would probably require a car um the other you know another trend in the market is is co-living so my question is you know how do you feel about you know the typological question what kinds of communities are you building what kinds of what kinds of users as an individual individuals or groups and then more broadly what kinds of communities you're designing for do you have a sense of that being driving force for yourselves and for the market or you know how do you feel about that yeah if i if i may jump in um I, so first of all I, I think we're totally aligned with what fed just said about the missing middle um you know in particular north america we have this dichotomy where we either have endless sprawl of really low rise or we have you know high rise concrete towers for urban living and we have we have very little in between right now and and there's a there's a real pent up demand um for for making that possible problem is or has been that um you know with standard stick frame construction that we've used to build our sprawl buildings you can't build that missing middle very well um, maybe you know you could up to four or five stories but as i said the building code has now changed. So we have actually an increasingly um, predictable framework now for this possibility of using timber construction in this area of you know, five to 18 stories, which is what we're looking at. And we also think that that is coincidentally also a really nice scale to actually live in and, and make, you know, build meaningful cities. So we hear from, from regulators and um, you know municipalities that this is where they would like to go because it allows them to make really good uh, public infrastructure investment for you know rapid transit for libraries daycares whatever they need to build and they keep people in the cities for a good tax base right um, so it goes back to this question for us that the product must be right um, for to to offer something that is really livable for people that you would go and saying, you know, yeah, that's perfect. That's a great home for me. I feel I'm connected to my community. I am, uh, I have all my livability criteria set up. I don't feel like I'm just squeezed into a mold um, and, 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 and have the, 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 the qualitative um, expectations met. And so when we look at typology, when we started out, we've always said the product needs to build really good community needs to build really good livability so that people can embrace it and it's important from a number of perspectives um 
you know, as I said, it's the municipality, but it's also, it's companies. Like we are now getting attracted by like people calling us and saying, well, we're working in a city and that city wants to attract tech workers, young people that, you know, make a decent amount of money, but they can't afford to buy in the real estate market, but they want nice homes. How do we create nice homes to, you know, retain people? You know, I think it's a fairly common Silicon Valley question, for example, where people, you know, some companies leave, leave uh, lose people because they move somewhere else. So. The question of typology and design um, value, what it represents for the end user, I think is, is, is super important. And we feel that um, the, the calls that we're getting right now from clients is interesting. When we ask them, well, why are you calling us? It's like, well, we love your innovation and your technology. That's great. But what we really like is that you're essentially uh, compliant with these sort of, you know, ESG expectations that are out there, that, that there is that social resilience built into the, uh, into the typology and that we can build these communities. And with that, we're in a very good negotiation position um, with the municipalities that we want to operate in. ESG stands for environmental and sustainable governance on the investment side. And it, it right. sort of becomes a shorthand for environmental performance in, in, in the building sector and so forth. Do you have the same sense, Fed, that the market is that the user, that the the end user market is converging on the kind of performance features that you're designing in, or is there some mismatch there? Um, I mean, we. I agree with what Oliver said. I think that um, there is this desire for um, more high quality, dense urban living of um, a pleasant scale, right? Something that is uh, just not necessarily just skyscrapers but something that is of near more human neighbor scale now i mean for us that's pretty much what we locked ourselves into um like at the start we were only working on buildings up to uh four stories high at the moment um and even in some cases uh for example for one 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 standard uh product typology that we are developing for los angeles it's um, you know we we designed it in a more townhome uh, st structure. It's a multifamily, but it, but it appears more as if it's a collection of townhomes, and that is just because in this particular city, people want to live in walkable neighborhoods, but still everybody somehow you know dreams to uh, to live in a single family home, and that happened to be you know a good balance there. Um, in terms of uh, who we're building for, you know, for us, um, long-term ambition. What we are really interested in is, um, although we are for, you know, we are for-profit developer, we're looking to for ways to create moderately priced housing. Um, at the moment, uh, you know, we are looking at different density bonuses programs, so that even in the mix uh, of um, the units that we create, there is market-rate housing and there is affordable housing, and then the question becomes, you know, at what scale the price that we can set for the market rate housing would become, you know, reasonably, uh, reasonably low and more affordable. Um, and so that's the ultimate ambition, because I think um, price still is still the biggest barrier for, for so many people in, uh, uh, in a lot of markets. And so um, this is something that we're very conscious of. Um, So, I mean, sort of extending from that question, 
to what extent do you feel that your form factors, your your the typology of your of your projects, should or does include kind of new new value layers or new activation layers, as I call them? What what I mean by that is the retail and working and delivery based lifestyles, or you know what I call the value or activation layers of of a property, are evolving very fast. So you have you know, is there a corner shop? Is there some kind of, you know, concierge service or amenity in the building? Is there, you know, optimized, you know, packaged services and deliveries and so forth? Do you feel that that evolution of, you know, what it is to shop, to live, to work is exogenous to your plan? Or is it coming later? Or is something you're already working with? Well, I mean, so... A lot of it, especially with your reference to a corner store, um, we'd love that uh, in pretty much every property. But hey, zoning, um, yeah, in Los Angeles, uh, most most of the places where we're we're looking to build is just not legal, so it's it's mm-hmm. pure residential. So it comes down to uh, you know any amenities that you can create within the building. And again, in our case, because we are working on pretty uh, small-scale developments. There is limit to how, um, how how much amenitization or communal space we we are able to introduce to it. So we actually at this point in time trying to um, uh, t- to do pretty simple projects in a way that they're not highly amenitized uh, beyond mm. uh, just you know pro- pro- providing apartments and a good property uh, property management services. Uh, for for the renters, um, and I think it goes back to your question about co-living operators and 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 the current um, current trends in experimenting with different um, housing models. Um, you know, we are very much interested in, in investigating this uh, sometime down sometime down the line. Currently, it's just a question of how many experiments you want to run simultaneously. Uh, so we are. You know, f- for us, we decided to focus on just more traditional, uh, long-term um, yeah. house- housing uh, yeah. with good property management, but not necessarily over-promise on the amenitization that we can provide. Uh, but yeah. long-term, I agree with you. That's that's where 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 everything is moving. So I I want to step back for a moment. Um, when we started out. You know, originally we started out as an as an architecture firm. I'm I'm an architect, and I was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Germany. I was based in Europe. I went to architecture school in places like Barcelona and Berlin, and lived always in really dense cities with uh, a great mixed use and, and amenities, public amenities close by, and um, you know everything. Sort of this idea of the the 15 minute city um, was sort of part of how I how I grew up, um, and. When we then eventually landed in Vancouver 22 years ago, we were approached by a family um, from Colombia, actually, that uh, said, you know, there, there were developers that wanted to do a project in Vancouver and said, well, we only have sprawl or we have high rises and can't we just find something? Can we not just do something in the missing middle, not just in scale, but the missing middle also as a form of mixed use? that we really have this, this integration between commercial work and, uh, and homes really all with, within one building, isn't that possible? And so we, we built a building for them 
and it was in many ways hugely successful. It won us like the, the highest honor of, of design in Canada, and um, which was fantastic. But we couldn't repeat the success because the construction industry was so ill prepared to accommodate anything that was typologically different, uh, using mm. you know slight difference in, in in construction methodology. That that gave us sort of the motivation to say, okay. There is something there. We can create a product that people genuinely love and say it's awesome and I want to live here forever sort of attitude, right? And people did say that in that building and are still saying it in there. Um, but we couldn't find a systematic way to build it. So when we set, we sort of wrote the DNA for our platforms for life approach, um, we said from the beginning that the systems have to work in such a way that we can stack. So all our technology, like our mass timber building system technology that consists of floor panels and columns and our facade panels, everything has been designed to accommodate for the required load transfer and uh, service integration so that you can go from commercial to offices to, um, to residential homes and that you can even dare to think that these homes can change over time and shift more into a work culture or more into a living culture because we said, the paradigm needs to be a hundred plus years and look back a yeah. hundred years, right? And we're living in a world that's changing constantly. So adaptability between these functions needs to be baked into, into what we do. So that's now when we can now deliver that our systems, our systems can uh, allow for that, uh, you know, accommodate and that therefore also amenity, right? So this same yes. thing. So you can have in the commercial levels, you can have amenity space, you have daycares, you can have what's needed to, to build sort of like a, a more complete community in every single building. Yeah, it's good to hear that. I mean, thanks for the, for sharing that. I mean, just to explain in some way why any of this pop, this sort of talk series exists is because what, we, what my company best to is trying to do is explain and learn roughly what we learn about what we're trying to do. Our basic view is that users and buildings naturally want more amenities. They want more and more services in the broad sense added to the experience, and they have spatial implications. But actually, what real estate developers need to understand is they need a partnership with service providers. To do a first-party service turns turns out to be not a very good proposition. It's just it's hotelization, which makes a very different business. So you can leverage third-party service providers if you bake them into the building spatially and in business terms in some way. Conversely, re retailers are going on demand. Service providers are going on subscription. They need anchors and service packages included in the real estate side. And if that doesn't happen, what you get is what we call the last Peter crunch where basically you've got people in crash helmets at 2 a.m wandering around multifamily buildings jumping over fences you've got packages in the corridor which is a fire hazard and basically what that adds up to is the all of these wonderful new you know housing environments that you're, that you're creating with all sorts of you know value propositions attached as essentially being platformized by large companies amazon or the logistics providers for retailers and so we we feel there's a problem that needs to be solved now what we've got stuck is basically, um, you know, up until recently, either we get pulled into fixing the basic prop tech stack for the company, or we get pulled into being, you know, the kind of siren song of doing logistics optimization, which we do not believe in. We think logistics is going to be massively aggregated and simplified because it's just too complicated and expensive. Or we get pulled into consumer propositions where we're somehow telling a complex concierge type story for users. Now, we think the platform is in the middle. Um, and for us, what is sort of essential is to sort of see the internal workings technically and in business terms of, of you know of, of projects like yours of companies like yours because our view is that 
whether from user pressure or from city regulation or from just overwhelming irresponsibility, like without any ill intent, it's still irresponsible for the retail and logistics sector. It's just flooding buildings with, you know, delivery guys and service guys. We, there needs to be a last meter solution. So we're working it out step by step, but you know, you're pioneering <laughs> the formats that we want to engage with. So it's good to hear on your side, Oliver, that, um, that you feel that your format is kind of, you know, I think I'm not sure if you used the phrase extensible, but that's exactly how I would how I would see it. Let, let's talk for a second about, you know, I mean, like just sort of reviewing the whole premise of verticalization because it's been a promise since at least the 50s, right? Um, you know, the uh, the there was a guy called Ernst Schumacher who wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, right? And he is a pioneer of you know he was a he was a pioneer of sustainability and he and he believed in a thing called um mass customization right which is what he you know he, he originally proposed so he would think he was it was the 50s or the 60s or 70s he was writing and um whatever what, what's gone wrong with verticalization so far right we'll come to the big kind of white elephant in the room which we'll discuss in a second we'll name it then but in general how is it that something that sounds obvious, Oliver, has not been done before? Just is it just that hard? Yeah, I mean, we're we, you know, so it's been it's been pioneered, obviously, um, you know, I think since the since the mid '90s in many other sectors, right? I mean, if you look at companies like you know Nike or whatever, there, uh, you know, but we're not shoe make. We, we we don't make shoes. We make something that has to meet, um, you know, uh, life safety standards, right? People live in these buildings. They, they, they don't want to get hurt or killed. Um, they have to stand up and fire in windstorms and, um, and you know, they, they need to be really good products. And this, I think it was rightly pointed out, we've got just this incredible range of different jurisdictions where everybody's kind of just wanting to cook their own little meal. And, and that's really prevented the development of something that can be very consistent on, on one end. And then you need technology, right? I mean, this is the key differentiator right now that we're using advanced software technology and advanced robotics. I really sort of bring the best together of, of that, that technology of, of, you know, we're moving to AI and everything and, and, and the robotics together to allow that incredible flexibility. Because in buildings, you've got a lot of competing um, sort of data points, right? But we, we sort of took a step back and said, what are buildings really? When you really think about it long and hard, they're really just geometry, right? And physics and culture. Like, so once you get that, that, that this is what the three things is, now you can build a framework from where you can generate the consistency on the one end and develop adaptability. But you need to create all that software code. There isn't a single piece of software in the market that will let you do that. So we had to write that ourselves. There isn't okay, anybody... But, but who's doing the right. manufacturing, if I just add the one point, using manufacturing right. automation to not just create a repeatable task. We use manufacturing mm -hmm. automation to, to enable that ability to, you know, for subtle variation um, mm -hmm. that's required. Mm -hmm. But so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of poke you to be even more explicit. Are you saying that you're just more awesome than other people? And I think that's, that, is, that seems to me the case. But let's be really clear. Why, why have other people not done this? Or if, when they've tried, it hasn't worked. What, what is differentiating you? Why, is it not, why are there not many more companies like yours? Because there aren't that many. There are some, but there aren't that many. 
Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think we've sort of, you know, we've seen we've seen the problems in the industry, and we've sort of brought together a few things um, when we started out a decade ago. Um, that came after already having experimented through the industry for another decade before that, right? And oh. so you need to really take a good hard look at the industry and be willing to do that from a more holistic perspective. If you're just saying I'm a contractor and I want to make it better, but you never bother to venture into that discussion we had about typology and the real needs of the market, then you solve it from a contractor's perspective. If you're just a developer and you don't want to think about software and manufacturing automation, you just come up with a solution that just works strictly from a development perspective, but you can't get to that integration issue unless you're really willing to say, I'm, they're all fair game. I'm going to look at the design, at the engineering, at the systems integration, the software mm. and so forth. Right. And mm. it's, it's a complex task, but the more you work through that, the more you change the work, how, how you work. And that's really what, what, you know, I'm not daring to say we're more awesome, but what we're really differentiated is that we built a mm. culture where that's being done every single day. Nobody's working in a mm. silo. Everybody's constantly mm. shuttling back and forth between design, software engineering, manufacturing. Yeah. All our people, be that designers or engineers, you know, go back and forth of all these issues in 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 in, in ongoing conversations because we're really at the you know at the end of the day we're just about a simple thing that is about integration of these technologies with each other. Mm. Fed, why why do you think that that verticalization of of any sort? In particular, the sort that you know you and Oliver are working on has, is not more common, and why has it not worked out and scaled already? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if we look around the world, uh, it has uh, been successful, and sometimes for uh, many, many decades. I mean, I'm originally from Russia, and so uh, majority of multifamily housing there is produced um, in factories assembled on site. And, um, you know, it's, it's a result of a centralized effort in the Soviet times. But then, you know, private companies that took over just leveraged that, you know, economies of scale that were existing and just started working on improving the product. So, you know, company like PIC uh, today is delivering an exceptional quality product based on these developments that uh, they inherited. Uh, so, but that's a just the historical context, you know, there was this investment in many ways supported by government in, in, in that and in market economies uh, where um, the development was driven by private companies, the de disintegration of the industry made a lot of sense because it was a very cost efficient way uh, to develop projects um, um, one after another. So I think um, it is absolutely time um, it changes. It just requires a lot of effort, upfront investment and intelligence. And again, you know, I think that I, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree that, you know, what Intelligent City uh, is doing is a great example of, of a very great scalable system. And hopefully, you know, it only scales from there. Um, you know, in our case, uh, what we see precedents of some developers trying to do somewhat repeatable projects um, on lower on local level. So I don't know in Los Angeles is Sean Tapler in Philadelphia V2 Properties. They are trying to do pretty repeatable projects in a similar scale. But what doesn't 
happened is what Oliver mentioned is that, you know, it's not enough just to do something in a repeatable manner. You need to get into how it's designed, how it's engineered, how it's going to operate over its whole lifetime, not only when you uh, build it and sell it and then let, let somebody else deal with whatever breaks in it. So I think uh, what will happen in the industry is um, and is the transition into thinking about building across its whole life cycle. So not just, uh, you know, let's build it and sell. And part of the reason why it's likely going to happen is something that uh, we briefly mentioned earlier is that the increasing role of companies like co-living operators, like Airbnb mm. uh, increasing mm. its share of long-term rentals, um, other companies mm. trying to create multifamily brands and property management, because as mm. their role increases, um, mm. they would uh, dictate more uh, requirements towards this building sustainability, amenitization, services as uh, as uh, john you mentioned and so everybody would have to adapt to towards that so companies that are trying to uh, build systems and platforms that will be able to support that will be well well positioned uh for that uh i think but but so, sorry you were gonna say kind of yeah no I, will, uh, I think they will be well positioned for that change that is pretty much inevitable at that point I just I like mean, to, yeah. if I if I may just add add one point there. Um, so I, I I totally agree with what Fed just said. Um, the, I think for us the key thing is we're we're the position that we've taken is we we need to move away from just thinking about construction as a you know um, uh, something that's quantitative. Um, and and we've been sort of you know I think very much guided by something that that Steve Jobs said in in 1983. You know, where he wasn't just talking about com making computers. He said, we're going to make a qualitative difference in the way we communicate with each other. That was mm. there. That was his North Star, right? And look what, what, what came from that vision. And, and it's the same thing with us. We need, to, we need to be guided by something. And we're saying we, we want to empower people to live better um, and not just a few but as many people as we can possibly reach with meaningful technology. And once, once you set that, then you ask yourself every morning when you look in the mirror and saying, what can we do to do that? And what are the technologies and what is the integration of technologies? And, but if you think all day just simply, how do I make more money and you know, improve the productivity of my, my, my construction company, you're not gonna get to this paradigm of deep integration. Yeah, I mean, so, um... Uh, you're you're both extremely polite about what you're doing, right? I mean, I, I think if we're talking about you know reinvention of of one of the earliest economies, um, arguably one of the I mean one of the most important economies in in human history for housing, I think we can afford to be um, more uh, more more robust about it, particularly at the scale at which it, it, it it's needed. I mean, something that occurs to me is that you know um, Silicon Valley is is very shameless in saying what it's doing is fantastic and world-changing, even when what it's doing is trivial. So there's a company that literally has done nothing else than reinvent email interface. It doesn't even have an email program. It's just reinventing the Gmail interface and it's raised $50 million and they believe they're changing the world. And I find that, you know, I think, you, you know, you, you, Oliver, and you, Fed, are, are, you know, I'd love you to, you know, I'd love us all to have the, <laughs> the, the bullish aggression of these guys because that company, I shit you not, is called Superhuman. 
an email interface. It's not even an email program has raised 50 million and it calls itself superhuman. So I think what you're doing, Fred and Oliver, is superhuman. Um, uh, um, and, and I think that, you know, you're, you're getting on that track, I think, Oliver, when you, when you talk about, you know, reinventing the narrative of what, of what housing is and what it adds up to uh, as an industry, not just as a kind of, you know, end, end user proposition. And, and I think the narrative can, can expand and kind of, kind of breathe, breathe more air and breathe, you know, stand taller in that sense because of its, its huge implications. So many other industries hang on it, right? I mean, it's 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 the it's the scaffolding, or it's the you know it's the skeleton for so much of of the urban economy. Um, so let's talk about it. Katerra, what's happened there? Katerra is you know it's received approximately a billion dollars in funding, much of which from SoftBank, which also funded WeWork, which maybe is a clue to what's gone wrong. But it has it's been struggling. They've lost. They've cycled through three generations of senior executives. It seems like they're still losing money. Do you have a sense of what the deal is there, Oliver? Well, they're well funded, um, you know, and they've burned through they've burned through a lot of money. And it's, from the rumors, it sounds like that they they ran into some serious financial issues because they're just going through a lot of money. And I think in our industry, you can you can burn easily through a lot of money because right. you know there are complexities there. Um, I, I, I don't want to judge what, what they're doing at Katera. I think we're really we're, we're focusing on what we're doing and what we're doing different. And again, I think the, the difference that we that we are offering in comparison to Katera is really fundamentally that we're from the outset been about deep integration and that we're about, you know, combining consistency with adaptability. And I think that's not you know, wasn't originally in, in Katera's mission statement. I mean, their, their mission statement seemed to be adopted on an annual basis. And I think they're wobbling mm. around a bit with the North Star. And mm. um, because mm. they're trying to, they're trying to, they, they grow together um, a whole bunch of sort of fragmented fields and trying to sort of use right. a lot of money exactly. to, to create a consistent yeah. whole from it. But I don't think that they ever really had sort of, you know, a, a greater vision other than saying, hey, with a lot of money and, and using technologies, we could we could maybe be a dominant player in the way how we change the industry. But I, but I think you need to need to know how you want to change the industry. Otherwise, you're just going to go through a lot of money and a lot of wheel spinning. Do you have a sense of, of, of what's up over there? Ed? Um, I mean, first, I want to preface it. Uh, by saying that I really hope they find a path forward and succeed. Um, it will uh, be beneficial to everybody in the industry if they figure it out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the ultimate direction um, and the ambition there was correct. Um, maybe some applications in terms of, again, just the variety of things that they're trying to do um, is just making it more difficult for them to, to to scale because you know that's kind of what a you know, something that I heard is that each project for them is still pretty much bespoke uh, mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily using you know a scalable platform or system in the same way mm-hmm. as Oliver's team is doing. So I, I don't know. I hope they figure figure it out. Um, they did a magnificent feat of growing, you know, in the span of two years to you know, five thousand people. I, I from from zero. I don't know how it's um, it's even possible. So, 
but but that's impressive what, what i want to say and so i really hope they figure it out yeah i would i would, I would agree with that i mean i think if, if they can set up you know a paradigm where where people just saying okay i want to work with companies that integrate that prefabricate that have better technology and better solutions and change the value paradigm and then they can help pave that path you know as trailblazers that that's going to be good for all of us for sure right and, and so yeah. yeah i wish them i wish them well I think the, my, my sense of it. Sorry, carry on, Fed. Yeah, no, I just want to say that you know it's, it's kind of um, the thing with 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 this industry uh, is that uh, it is just far tougher uh, than um, a lot of people when just approach it um, kind of anticipate. Um, it's 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 tough every part of the way. It's tough in terms of product design and engineering and stuff in terms of construction it's stuff in terms of uh, legal context execution just the amount of capital it requires so it's a tough industry mm. um mm. i it, it and there is an interesting kind of balance here you mentioned um you know in your riff about venture uh, venture funding um there is a question of you know what models uh, in this industry are venture fundable and, and therefore they can become kind of dominant and scalable and which models are just kind of great businesses that could be profitable, that could scale, you know, um, gracefully over decades. Um, and that, I, you know, to this day, um, I, I don't have a firm answer to this. I think it's, it's kind of art and science. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see in the future. Um, but but it's but it, but it's tough because it's yeah it's a massive you know multi trillion dollar industry just mm. just super hard to get into. Mm. I mean I think there's a number of issues and I think that they, some of them kind of come from what you what you're saying. I think that when venture capital seeks an opportunity, I mean mainly what they're trying to buy is 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 I mean, fundamentally rapid massive growth, right? They want rapid growth into massive markets, but what they also want. I mean, in the kind of latter stages of Silicon Valley is diversified revenue streams, right? So Uber is is demonstrative of that. And obviously they'd like the market to be simple because that's in principle, the markets have been simple for digital products. The markets have actually not, not been existent. So you can just go ahead and build build out what the consumers want. There's nothing to fight with. There's no regulation. It's all just, you know, blue sky. But in the uh, construction space, I think as, you know, technology becomes less and less Clearly, digital, you run into all sorts of interesting issues. Maybe you can get scaling, but actually, you have a regulatory issue. We can get scaling, but you don't get the margin, or you have scaling, you can't diversify correctly. And so, watching Uber struggle with these issues, struggle to be a digital company in a non digital world is very interesting. And I think Katera is an even tougher example of that, where, of course, there's a large market. It's massive. It's growing. Um, the opportunity to you know to create efficiencies is huge, but um, there's so much to fix in the middle, which is what you've been describing, um, in particular, Oliver. That where you just need to be very, very, very good at it. And if you don't have a very focused, constrained product, you'll end up chasing a, a whole variety of very expensive experiments, whether in terms of client projects or you know, uh, you know, sort of integrated supply chain, which is what Katera has been spending a lot of money on. And it just won't give you the returns or the scale out that Silicon Valley expects. And then you have the unfortunate pressure that more money crashes in seeking more return. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, you know, the, the executive leadership has changed a bunch of times. I mean, I would love it to succeed for exactly the same reason as I said always from the very beginning. 
and all through Adam Newman's crisis that I wanted WeWork to succeed, which is the model is good for the market, right? Everybody benefits by seeing these things succeed. The flip side is if it fails, a little bit will happen with Flux. It does put a downer on the investment interest because people say, well, that stuff doesn't work. You know, real estate verticalization, I mean, housing verticalization does not work. We can't put money in that. That's a busted, you know, that's a busted model because that tends to be how venture capital works, kind of goes in these cycles. You know, so, so what is the positive takeaway you know, that the VC community can, can, can get from the overall experience in um, you know, housing verticalization, particularly Katara? I mean, what should they be learning from all this and what are we, what are we inviting them to do? You know, we're, we're hugely appreciative of, of uh, what Katara has accomplished, but you know, they've also had the challenges and taking the lessons learned from it, we would really hope that the VC community is going to have a, a, a much deeper, you know, detailed look into uh, the, the power of the technologies um, that many of us have to offer. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that feels to me about right, right, which is, which is that the venture capital community has, can see the overall potential in terms of scale. I mean, there are issues around scalability in terms of the speed of scaling and the, you know, the conventional, um, the ease with which you can apply the classical venture model, technology venture model to, to the built sector. But I think, as you say, as they look more deeply into it and see who's out there, I think my, my feeling is they'll find their way to your business model, which I think is the, you know, the, the state of the art, the most investable proposition uh, ready for scale out right now. And um, I'm looking forward to to seeing how that advances. What I would say, and this is something that Fed has been, he said in this episode, and he, and he kind of says elsewhere, which is part of that investigation is is actually looking for what alternative scaling models are there. How far should things grow? Which market should they grow into? How much should they partner with other you know, technology providers or hardware providers? I mean, how much should they integrate? How much should they leave outside? Fed is you know, differentiated himself by not yet having a you know a you know a technical fabrication component which he might license from you for example right so so this these nuancing of 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 models um and you know venture investments willingness to investigate them i think is is the next wave that as you say you know katera is inspired um but i think now it's time for everybody to look a bit more closely and and see what really will will work do you how, do you feel uh, how I, is that do you feel yeah, I'd like to maybe add one more point to it. I think the the idea of you know manufacturing, for example, comes with the connotation that it's you know capital intensive, um, and you know ultimately maybe not really scalable. But I think we we thought from the beginning and we we built our own, our technology around the possibility of taking it into various markets and have these sort of local, highly efficient, highly automated micro factories um, that can also become licensable so that you really can take that model into uh, into larger markets and keep scaling it and have the economies of scale and, 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 and the possibility of have that, you know, shared common housing platform, but make it sufficiently adaptable and configurable so that it's, uh, it's viable in a, in a broad range of markets. So in your model, Oliver, maybe it's a bit, and maybe it's not so relevant to you, uh, Fed. So we'll kind of swing back to you in, in a second. Um, just summarize briefly, because I know you could, you could you could go into it in great detail. Summarize exactly what the automation and modular, what the, the technical dimension of automation and modularity, just in very simple terms. What are robots making? What are, what is the you know the efficiency in terms of construction? What is the kind of modular and automated dynamic within what you're doing? So beyond the software that you've created to design, more into the fabrication and build dynamic. Right. So 
the, the front end confirms everything, right? So the front end is our software engine and it creates a virtual twin and it gives a full integration and makes us understand everything of how all the components come together so we don't have to problem solve on site. And then within that, we've selected what are the components that really enable the construction of these buildings and, and realized it is the structural system um, that is essentially a platform and, and, and regulates how all the services will connect it, be to it, flow through it, and so forth. And then the building envelope uh, in itself, because that's where we can establish the performance of a building in like, you know, heat loss or cooling loads um, and, and how it sits in its climate. And we can also get people out of the weather because if you put the building envelope on right through an offsite prefabricated um, you know, rapid erection process and you can build a big building in, in literally three months, you're out of the weather and you can now complete the building within a very short amount of time. So we focused yeah. on those two components, um, which is the structural system and, and there we can bring certainty, right? So we're going, we've gone through a really rigorous testing program that's ongoing where we do fire testing, acoustic testing and pre-certification and compliance. We certify these uh, facade panels to meet the highest standards for energy performance. We call it something called a passive house standard, which means you reduce the, the heating and cooling loads on a building by about 85% um, and, and bring all of that together. So that is being made in our factory now. So we use advanced um, heavy duty robotics to basically assemble all these components. They're all based on mass timber. So we machine them and then we assemble them um, using, you know, placement that humans can't do because these panels weigh, you know, anywhere between seven to 800 pounds a piece. Um, there will be precision assembled, um, uh, glued together, uh, screwed and nailed together, all using advanced robotics um, into these um, components and then they integrate. So they have ventilation systems pre-installed, they have electrical uh, parts pre-installed so that when you come to the site with these components, they're, they're all machined to like a 16th of an inch tolerance. So they work extremely well together and they're really reliable. I mean, you put a facade panel on, you don't need a scaffold, you need any complicated things. You know, these facade panels are like uh, 25 feet wide, 10 feet tall, They've got all the windows and the entire building envelope is pre-installed and pre-certified. So we know that they work, right? So we're just going through a test next month where we literally take a jet engine and blow, you know, tornado force winds at, at, at these buildings, making sure that they're airtight and watertight and everything. So mm. we have that certainty, right? But within that, again, in our manufacturing, we can make these panels wider or shorter, higher this, we can add balconies, we can add feature sets, we can change the color, we can change the patterns, we can make them look individual and give them those those uh, individual performances, right? But that's that's our focus right now is machining and assembly of the structural system and and, and the building envelope. Fed, why, so what, Fed, why would you not want to do that other than the fact that it's extremely hard? <laughs> I mean, where are you the, at with automation? <laughs> no, we would definitely want to do that. Um, um, I think, again, I, I absolutely agree. Th this is the future um, of the industry. Uh, we, 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 and the question is just how we can get there as fast as possible. Yeah. I mean, in our case, uh, we we started the company with a focus on the pipeline program a problem. So we're inter yeah. interested in, in automating the development process end to end. And eventually, uh, you know, we would want to uh, partner with with companies similar to uh, Intelligent City that automate the manufacturing uh, process and hopefully eventually on-site construction as well. For now, yeah. we are automating the development part of it, which is 
Um, you know, we, we, we're investing in data science uh, in every market that we operate so that we know exactly, you know, where we can build. We're um, knowing not only all existing regulations, but automatically generating performer for each eligible site. Uh, we're working on automating design so that for each site that is eligible, we automatically ge generate the designs and the engineers that you know, fit with our un underwriting criteria. So we are trying to automate more of a kind of soft cost part of the development at this moment. Mm -hmm. And for us, that was just a conscious decision um, to try to start the company with um, in a more lean way, just requiring less capital uh, upfront, mm -hmm. build a pipeline. And once we prove to ourselves that there is a consistent pipeline for these projects to be prefabricated, you know, hopefully that allows us to um, get more sophisticated in terms of thinking about how these buildings are constructed and man and, and manufactured. Uh, but again, you know, it's just a sequence for us. Um, have you have you got in your model like a sustainability like framework for materials choice, materials recovery, adaptation? I mean, beyond basically the baselines and lead or green or just you know you know kind of you know building code. If you got a kind of strategy in terms of the overall model, because mm -hmm. I know, because you very much do, Oliver. I'll come to you in a second. But how are you? How where are you at on the as it were the kind of systemic sustainability integration across your model? Mm -hmm. You mentioned two things that are very interesting for us uh, long term, and that's part of our previous. Uh, uh, research and work we did we we did with Peter in the past, and that is um, adaptability um, to change and 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 reconfiguration. You know, long term, this is something that we're very interested in seeing how building changes over its lifetime, um, and that means that um, easy maintenance, but also changing unit mix and 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 its configuration to adapt to whatever future holds. Um, you know. Uh, we are absolutely believe that buildings should not be designed as like a permanent fixed object, but something that is um, can be reconfigured over time. Now, being very frank, um, our first projects would not uh, be able to do that. Um, mm -hmm. um, this is something that we want to uh, invest uh, in, in at a later date, again, once we uh, solve the pipeline problem for, problem for us. Other than that, in terms of sustainability, um, you know, our approach is that you know we just invest in, in design and engineering and um, you know energy models, better materials upfront, which is uh, again more expensive in terms of pre-development cost, but also just uh, upfront construction day one. But it brings you savings over the building lifetime. And that is different from what you know some uh, home builders have to do because they have to mm. just be very very uh, tough on cost uh, upfront. Mm. And so sometimes what slips through the cracks is all the you know better design and sustainability considerations. In our model, because we can spread these costs across multiple projects, uh, we are eager uh, and comfortable to do that upfront investment. So, so Oliver, I mean, you you you're pioneering pioneering this on many levels. Give, give us a couple of like highlights. What are you most proud of in terms of your sustainability kind of integration? Because you've got modularity, you've got reconfigurability, you've got timber, you've got passive house stands in terms of insulation. What what what? I mean, that that's those are all very chunky 
kind of credentials? What are your biggest wins? What are you most proud of in the sustainability domain? I think what, what we are, you know, we said from the beginning, our buildings should be as sustainable as possible. And our mission was that, we you know, we needed to sort of tread lighter on the planet and, and live in balance with it. Um, but I think what we're really proud of is now that we have found by focusing on it and just making every decision along the way over the last 10 years and saying, you know, this is yeah. what, are, what are we need to adopt and, and how do we integrate that? We're now at a point where the idea of, of sustainable, carbon neutral living um, is no longer, you know, mutually exclusive from the idea of making housing more affordable. Right. But that in fact doing that is good business because it leads to a number of things you get you know when you build buildings that are high energy performing you get know, buildings that are quiet right mm -hmm. they have great they have great windows they get your building yeah. envelopes that makes urban living better um mm -hmm. you get incentives in, in in developing more density increasingly from the cities it's better for the economics of the building you get a dramatically reduced energy costs and, and maintenance costs on these buildings because of the quality control that you do on the building envelope. So when you look at the economics, the economics of our buildings are actually far better. They're 50% better on a life cycle of a building than a conventional incumbent building today. So if you ask me what I'm really proud of is that, that it's not a dream. We can do it today and we can do it at really great cost if we keep focusing on it. Mm. Well, I mean, it's great to hear. One of the reasons why, you know, uh, and, and I'm gradually making this more clear, why the last meter model we, we think is a contributor to sustainability at scale is that if you want to change consumption patterns for users, you need a spatial anchor, right? Most of these ideas about the sharing economy, circular economy, end up needing a spatial anchor to make these things realistic. Let's say, for example, you wanted to have a business model where you could send computers back for fixing or phones for fixing or for, you know, for upgrade rather than throwing them away. You need a spatial anchor that's sufficient and likewise for rentals for you know for anything that is a more efficient way of consuming goods you need a spatial anchor and you need a, you know a, a sharing of the benefit with the real estate operators that facilitate that in, in spatial terms I'll give you an example which you know and i always test everybody in in every sector i say okay what's the most you know the greatest achievement you could make in terms of increasing the sustainability of modern delivery-based consumption they come up with all sorts of ideas route, route optimization clean vehicles bicycles whatever i say no it's bulk delivery right bulk delivery cuts out 60 percent 80 percent of all the deliveries running around town but to do bulk delivery among other things you need you need a big spatial anchor in the building which is what we call you know a last meter service point because it has to go somewhere you know it's a nice idea to have 50 boxes of groceries in one location at one time but you need space for that and that is a real estate decision um, and it's exciting to see you know you with such a absolutely full stack model in terms of sustainability because those kinds of conversations are easy to have right you've calculated every centimeter you know what it means in terms of energy and cost and value and that's exactly where we want the market to be at just a couple more questions and then we can kind of round off i mean how is software helping here and this is, i say this partly because our sponsor is epic games and they want unreal engine to become a more and more viable solution for as it were end-to-end uh, construction, design, build, you know, design, fabricate, build, disassemble, reuse, optimize. Um, it, it, what is the software environment for that, right? You, I think, so I know that you, Oliver, have written your own software. 
um, I, I suspect you've written some of your own software, Fed. Do, do, do like game engine tool sets, these much more kind of expansive, expandable, extensible tool sets matter right now? Can they be used? Where is software going in a way that helps you? Maybe start with you, Oliver. Yeah, so software is, uh, you know, is, is absolutely critical to, to what we do. We need the computational power to look at um, what we've referred to, um, you know, uh, a, a design process that allows for, for optimization, performance optimization in a, in a building so that we don't start and work how the industry works right now. And right now, decision making is very linear. Right, um, mm -hmm. and and uh, key decisions are being pushed out to to help with like you know the possibility of tendering, for example, and procurement issues down the road. Mm -hmm. Right, so people don't want to lock things in too early because they want competitive bids. So we said, okay, we have to do away with that. That's not a good process because you you need to you're, you're essentially sort of flying blind along the way until you finally get some bid, and then you build something that's built by companies that you may have never worked before with, right? And from trades to suppliers that come in on the second lowest bid or so. That's, so that's all not a good idea. You need to get to certainty and, and you know, have real data points at the beginning of a project. So our software basically runs through all critical things from the beginning, um, through the optimization, you know, uh, and, and, and the, the iterative evolutions of design issues within a matter of days and not months. Um, and then from there, we can populate it with the entire structural and mechanical systems. That's all programmed in our software on the side of consist consistency, right? So we know pretty much the cost of a building right from the beginning, like you would do when you've mm. developed a good product, right? You know, before you manufacture mm. it, um, you go through that, you know, from your engineering data, um, what it will cost, you know, what its carbon footprint will be, you know, what its overall performance would be and how it will work. So software allows really this fundamental optimization um, and then integration so that before you start construction, um, you also, you have that virtual twin, like no other industry mm -hmm. would just start to make a multi-million dollar venture, right? without knowing what you get yourself into it. You know, that's what our industry mm. does right now. You just sort of design and engineer still why you're building, which is crazy, yeah. um, given the but size you, but, and cost of projects. So our software brings that you, certainty and the solution to it. But the, but you, but you, but you're, but I mean, one of the implications of that is you've built your own stack, right? So, so for, for software providers, what, what, what do you, would you like them to know? Or are you always just going to carry on with the full stack of software that you manage entirely closed? No, no, no. I think, I think what's really important when we said platform, and I tried to sort of mention at the beginning is what we do is really, you know, has all kinds of open connections to the industry, right? Because we, right. we okay. certainly do not see ourselves in isolation. Everything we do can only be successful at scale, right? And we've designed mm -hmm. everything so that we can work at scale in multiple markets and so forth. So our software has mm -hmm. the possibility to tie into like industry standard BIM, right? And work mm -hmm. with suppliers and, and then bring it back mm -hmm. in, use their mm -hmm. data points to, to, you know, incorporate in our data points with, so we better calculate cost and performance and, and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the overall qualitative aspects of the building, same on the mm -hmm. supplies, supplier side, right? So um, it's, it's, it's a system that we've developed that has very um, deliberately designed connection points to, to the industry right. and doesn't see it at all in, as, in, in an isolated environment. Fed, where do you see software is at and going in terms of helping you progress your model? 
Yeah, I mean, for us, software is a critical part of streamlining uh, the development process uh, because basically we want to, like it starts uh, with land discovery and acquisition, right? Knowing exactly every lot in the city where we can build, taking into account regulations, taking into account current uh, rents, uh, all the neighborhood trends, and basically understanding how we can create a financial model for every lot and which would drive our acquisition uh, for land. Um, once, uh, once we have that side, it also comes down to creating the digital twin for future development. So for us, it comes in two mm. parts. You know, every lot is still somewhat unique. So uh, we're working mm. on software that would be able to automatically generate um, a, our and adapt our standard uh, building product to that site, uh, tell us exactly the costs. And then um, the next stage for us is uh, construction management. So basically yeah. integrating with supply chain, with manufacturers, with, uh, with uh, uh, general contractors and tracking the construction process. Um, and then also as part of the design is clearly automatically generating uh, permitting permitting documentation so that we compress uh, that uh, period of time as much as possible. Um, so that's definitely our core uh, focus. Um, you know, that's the way we structure our company is we have we are you know, Opco and Propco. So we have a venture back uh, op- op- operating company that develops the software design and all the tools that could be scalable across different projects and then each individual development is financed in a more traditional uh, real estate way. Uh, one thing I want to mention um, is about the game engines that you said. Um, yeah. Something that we found to be pretty practical in the past um, and, um, is to use them for design and, yeah. and use virtual reality goggles to do walkthroughs um, of yeah. the prototypes. Um, surprisingly, and you know, this, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, but it, it actually really helps uh, test different uh, concepts um, and catch some uh, spatial uh, mistakes uh, pretty early on. Um, so that's something that as the technology develops even further, I believe has a huge potential for the way we, you know, A-B test uh, buildings, and that goes mm. to something that Oliver said that you know it's so crazy that you know in construction we're dealing with multi-million uh, dollar projects uh, where every project you know in the traditional way is a prototype every time, mm. um, unlike in manufacturing where it's um, um, you know it's a repeatable a repeatable product that uh, is improved with every iteration. Uh, and then comparing to software, you know, we know that, you know, pretty much everything that we use online is A-B tested, meaning that, you know, um, developers and designers test different versions of the design and see which ones are easier to use uh, for the end users. Um, this is something that in architecture discipline or the way we design or do post-occupancy analysis is just not as common, um, you know. Folks like you know the WeWork team that uh, uh, now produce so many alumni that do great companies. You know they pioneered a lot of that in their mm-hmm. post-occupancy research and optimization of the floor plans because they realized that mm-hmm. you know they need that feedback loop to improve the designs. 
and you know if we can do it either with constructed buildings or using the virtual reality to some degree uh, to do A/B testing even with end users. So I, I just wanted to, you know, I, I really, uh, I think it's very important what Fed was just talking about is this, this ability to provide people with ways of, of visualizing and understanding, which, uh, you know, in the processes that we currently have in the industry don't exist. And when, so when we, when we have clients coming through the door and they're saying, you know, we're, we're interested in doing a project. We ask them, give us all the data, everything you know about your site, the regulatory framework, the bylaws, what stakeholders are involved, who are you concerned about, you know, and, and so forth. And all that essentially can be entered into a software system um, because when you think about doing buildings, it's not that they are so vastly different at the end of the day, right? I mean, buildings are buildings and uh, there, there, there's lo there are logics to that, that you can, when you've been in the industry, like we have been for a few decades, you can just follow through and, and, and put that into it and then visualize it, right? So this idea of virtualization, both from a walkthrough, but also from a data point, helps people and, and sort of, you know, sometimes very complex stakeholder groups that involve, you know, a community organization that are in opposition of a development yeah, okay. and the developer and the, the municipality and the builder. We bring everybody to the table from day one and then look them, make them look at the data and see that what they may have been worried about, this building can actually, as, as proposed or these versions, can address their concerns and put them to rest. And then you have a very organized process to work yourself into that virtual twin for construction. And again, you can use virtualization and bring all the people in that deliver components to the site, right? So in the future, we'll use AR, like augmented reality, et cetera, et cetera, that you just put your goggles on, you walk through the building and anybody comes in like, yeah, I'm, I'm finishing up the plumbing. You already can see it all. You can already cost it out and fully understand it and everything gets resolved. Everybody has sign off before you start construction, not afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Don't go into this idea of lawsuits and warfare between the parties um, because that's, that's a lot of people don't understand it. It is in the gaps of definitions where the industry is making its money right now, right? Exactly. Nobody will yeah. win, will win a commission based on the proposal. They'll, well, they'll, they'll, they'll win the commission, right? But that, that shows always a very thin margin. The money is being made in the changes and the gaps. Um, and, and that's really poisonous for the industry. And that's exactly what yeah. no, that, that's, that's why all the qualities get, get sort of value engineered yeah. out. Yeah, money is being made or money is being lost, right? I mean, it's being yeah. spent there, right? That's the problem. So the, the phrase A-B testing as a way of avoiding this kind of like permanent production of, you know, single prototypes is a great phrase because, you know, I, I myself haven't heard the phrase A-B testing, which is a technology concept or interface design concept applied to to to, to building design and architecture, which I think is great. Last question, and, and then I'll, let, I'll let you guys go. Sorry, carrying Fred. Yeah. Yeah, just a very quick note on something that Oliver mentioned about AR. I'm actually also, I'm very bullish on that, but there is one interesting caveat which requires systems like uh, precise, you know, mass, mass timber frames in order to enable it is that, you know, in order for AR, AR to work, you have to reference um, a digital twin of that construction. But in traditional construction, mm -hmm. when the tolerances are off, right, and like, you know, how how do you map one on another, especially on a multi-floor uh, uh, construction site, right? When things starting to go to to 
uh, disconnect between the uh, digital twin AR model and the reality. So when you have precise kit of parts that is manufactured with great uh, tolerance as the frame and the structure of the building, that is actually something that is a prerequisite to enable uh, AR applications successfully on, on the construction site. And I think there are incredible potential for that uh, in the future. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's, so... It's, it's, sorry, I just need to add one more point, sure. which, which is, it, you know, the wonderful thing about that, it goes then beyond also the building. Like a lot of our customers say, you know, a big problem that they have is also when you're a long-term operator, it's operations, right? So the people are like, yeah. what are your S-built drawings? Five years later, you want to repair something. You don't know where that pipe is and so forth. But so this model carries into the future and it makes for better operations, right? So that which solves a major problem. So if your operations yeah. is simplified, your energy cost is low, the quality control in the building is really high, the building remains adaptable over time, well, then it's a joy to operate. And then you would want to own a portfolio of these, then you get the economies of scale, right? And so one thing starts to lead to another. And, and I think this, this yeah. idea of stringing like software technology, not just into design, but into everything, it's become sort of the new you know, central nervous system in a way of, of, of a building over its life cycle. Absolutely. I mean, so, and so this is this is one. Sorry, I'll just say you can come in in a second, but just to say for myself, one of the reasons I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm happy that Epic Games is sponsoring this, you know, and when what they're trying to do with Unreal Engine is that it, right now it feels like it's a very open conversation. Certainly, when I speak to them, they're open to all sorts of ideas. I think the part of the issue is, is that if we take the current sort of incumbents in the software space, the reform request, right? The industry, I mean, the bunch of large offices wrote orders saying, we want you to upgrade your main tool, Revit. It's a, it's a very kind of stuck debate around the premises of the tool itself, right? And I think what you're describing in, in, in various ways is that unless we look at what we're trying to create out in the world, so we remove our gaze, we take our gaze from the tool and reforming the tool to, okay, well, look, how are we going to design? How do we want to you know, design from a modular perspective? Are we designing for sustainability? What are the typologies? What are the programs? What are the user groups? What's the operational requirement? What are the service requirements? Unless we have a much more holistic sense of what we're doing, we're just going to get stuck in working out if you have a license or a subscription for a, for a drawing tool, right? A line-based drawing tool. And I think that that's missing the bigger picture. And so, you know, what I feel you liberating as you describe more and more of how you feel software can facilitate the right, you know, solutions, whether it's, you know, A-B testing visualization, whether it's, you know, making sure that, you know, what you're visualizing is 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 formulated of something that has very precise tolerances because it's based on a, you know, modularized approach. All of these things are, I think, liberating the software debate. So I'm delighted to, hit, to be hearing it because I think it's definitely the way forward. Are you, are you going to say something, Fed? Yeah, I, I want to say that what Oliver mentioned about um, the the operations um, um so the life cycle of the building is very important and also the ability to create this uh, operating system for the building it's something where i feel the whole smart home industry was a bit missing the the the, the point because the focus was on consumer applications right there was trying to create exactly. user-centric uh, devices um uh, whereas I think the huge potential for the kind of the true smart home is in this back end, running the systems of the building after it's being built, mm -hmm. uh, making sure mm -hmm. that it knows when something might break even before it breaks, 
uh, or notifies the uh, property manager if something leaks before you know the, the residents uh, see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of goes to also uh, some of your um, comments, John, about the service layer, uh, because I think these two um, aspects, the kind of behind the scenes operating system for, for uh, the building, plus the less intrusive service layer, uh, is the uh, smart home o- of the future, but it really is not about creating a w- wall full of LEDs for somebody in their apartment. Um, well, it's interesting much yeah, more it's you say that because, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that has been one of our challenges presenting this to investors because they say, look, is this consumer technology? You say, well, no, it ends up having a consumer interface, but it's designed for the building operations there. So they say, is it prop tech? We're like, well, really, it's an interface layer between the service providers and the real estate operators. So we have to kind of nuance this thing all the time. Mm-hmm. What's fantastic about watching your models evolve, and it's the same for many of the people that you've you know, described coming out of WeWork because they're working on the same things, is that these are nuanced business models, right? If you sit down with your model, Oliver, you sit down with your model, bed and say this is what we're doing that you, you, a lot of the time i suspect that you're used to i mean probably less and less now but you know confusion as to what you're doing in a world where people are you know have certain assumptions let, let me finish off with this question because you know, you know i know you've got to run um in two parts g- give me just a quick summary on what the barriers to progress are for you individually as a company but also generally and what your dream scenario is for you as a company and generally in this verticalization housing optimization space in the, in the next five ten years so what are the barriers what's your dream scenario start with you fed and then we'll finish off with you oliver yeah so i think for us uh oh, and, and both barriers and my dream scenario is that the regulations are uh, moving in uh, um in the trend that they're currently moving, and that is basically uh, simplifying uh, creation of multifamily homes, or you know, in places like Minneapolis, they ban single-family zoning. So basically, buy right ability for people to create uh, small-scale missing-middle housing, uh, and that really something that our cities are, are needing. Um, it would unleash the power of. Uh, the market to fulfill uh, fulfill the needs, and then you know another thing that what we are really interested in is that as the supply uh, becomes less of a like, when the market is not driven by scarcity but there is competition on the quality, it gets more interesting because then we get into all these topics that we've just talked about about how mm-hmm. to make buildings better over their life cycle um, and focus on the end. Uh, and users who are you know, people living in these buildings rather than all the supporting infrastructure, even you know, investors in this housing, because today the market is kind of backwards. It's, it's a bit more focused towards uh, pe- people who finance it rather than necessarily end users who have to deal with whatever you know, they're presented. Okay, great. Thank you. Oliver, barriers and dream scenario. Yeah, so let's start with the barriers. I mean, there was a, a, a couple of barriers that existed, um, but I think that they're, they're changing, but there used to be, of course, regulations. So we're saying we're doing, you know, prefabricated timber buildings in the, to the lower end of the high rise sector that wasn't allowed until quite recently. And so we've, we knew that, of course, um, and, but we said we, we, we have to help pioneer that. So we, we, we weren't on the receiving end of potential new regulations, but said we need to be actively on the table for that and, and work with regulators and chaired committees and, you know, really just 
pushed very hard that this idea of high-rise timber buildings will come to fruition. And as I said, in 2019, it was adopted in, uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest in Canada. Um, and uh, it's now being adopted in the United States through the International Building Code. So we can now confidently move forward. And But the great thing with that is, you know, by, by sort of looking at that as a barrier and, and helping, you know, um, pave the path for it, our technology now is ready, right? So while it's still being adopted, mm -hmm. other people are waking up to this possibility, we're ready for it um, and, and can deliver and have our, you know, our completing our testing and our manufacturing up and running um, to deliver into that paradigm. The other one is market readiness. And I'd say, you know, when we went out and talked to people five, six years ago and saying we want to do carbon neutral buildings, they said, well, that's a nice ambition. Nice to have. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. That's really changed. I think, uh, you know, the idea of uh, buildings that are environmentally sustainable, that meet these objectives is, is no longer, you know, a nice aspiration. It actually has become um, essentially a requirement for, for everybody who wants to, you know, make good deals somewhere around development with the municipalities and, and have a product that's future proof and that they could sell off to somebody in the future, be that the end user or the developer, you know, if you want to develop a building and hold it as a rental housing operator and you want to sell, sell it 10 years from now to a pension fund or so, if that's not a building that's future proof and built as new standards, it's just not as sellable, right? So. The market has come around. I think COVID has also helped people to re refocus their their thinking about society and then, you know environmental issues and so forth. So these these barriers have come come around towards us. I think the, what you just what you just said, John, um, you know that it's sometimes the the perception like you're doing all these things. So who are you really? Are you property tech? Are you construction tech? Are you clean tech? Right? And 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 we're always like, well, we're none of them in the classical sense. Um, exactly, but you know, yeah. I give you interesting anecdote like we we, we won um, a, a major program grant program in Canada here it's called breakthrough energy solutions Canada um, where breakthrough energy ventures approached the Canadian government they got together and said let's let's sort of find the 10 most promising clean tech companies in, in in the country and and we were one of the winners and I think you know people were a bit surprised that we came out of the building sector because clean tech is sort of considered, um, you know, around energy, around um, battery technology, around, you know, microgrids and fusion technology and all those kind of things and not, not construction, right? So that is still a barrier that people don't understand that there is in fact the possibility that through that deep integration that we've been discussing for the last couple hours, that there is a way to sort of overcome these inherent issues. So what's my dream scenario? Well, we're, we're raising money and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to raise more money um, right now so that we can really can continue to develop our, our uh, technologies right now and that we can also go beyond the market where we are in the Pacific Northwest. We'd like to you know, really be present in, in, in California and in, in Ontario. Um, we have also some other very interesting inquiries right now, projects from other parts of the United States. Um, where people sort of coming around and, and uh, you know, seeing the, the, the power and the benefit of our technology and wanting to build very large scale projects, very large scale communities with us. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I hope that that some of those will come through and um, that we can continue to develop what we're doing continue to attract really amazing people. We've got an incredible team of people. There's nothing, you know, that I'm more proud of. It's just really the, the, the people that have joined us from all over the world to sort of, they believe in the same mission and, you know, we've given them all options in the company. They, they own and believe in it and um, yeah, build out that company and wake up every morning and be excited to go to work. That's, that's my dream. Yeah.
just to just to say and just to kind of it's not it's not a summary of what you both have said but it's an observation that you know one of the things that you 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 one of the things you're saying as a dream scenario is you know more and better investment others another thing that you're saying fed as a as a dream scenario is is you know regulatory environment i think that's a nice balance and i think it's something of a reality check for for the the tech world is that as it moves out into sectors that are more and more regulated constrained real world i mean as you say oliver there's a safety criterion that's just paramount in the building sector that balance between resources growth you know evolution speed of change market you know readiness and making it work from a regulatory perspective enabling it to happen making sure it happens the right way is a balance that i think you know we will want to improve and and kind of strengthen so i think that's a piece of pie you know that pioneering not just getting the technology done and building out the market but you know engaging with the regulatory environment is i think one of the most interesting dynamics that's unfolding thanks for this conversation it's obviously at the beginning of something mar- marvelous looking forward to seeing more and more of your you know product you know, technology products and, and built product coming out on, on onto the market and, and keeping the conversation going thanks so much yeah thank, thank you so very much john for uh, for uh for having me and uh, thanks Fed. It's great to meet you and I hope we can uh, continue our conversation um, beyond this uh, talk today. Likewise, Oliver, thanks so much. Really a pleasure to have this conversation and John, thanks so much for organizing. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck with the series and with uh, with your company as well. Thank you. Yeah.